Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the Fanzine Podcast. Just before we get started with the show, this is your host, Tony Fletcher. I want to invite you to sign up for the weekly newsletter over at tonyfletcher.substack.com. It'll give you updates on this podcast, my other podcast, all forms of recommendations with a midweek update, a long-form weekend read. Sign up is absolutely free. There are interview archives, uh, additional podcast features, and you will be able to to see uh, more of the fanzines that uh, we're talking about on this show. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. Thanks again. Now on with the pod. But jamming was great. I remember putting you on in my club and you you were just a kid, but you fucking believed it. And it was good. It's the jamming fanzine. Fanzine. Podcast. I mean, the thing about a fanzine, was holding it in your hand, right? And looking at the way it had been put together and the punk way it had been put together, quite quite frankly. And it had a staple in it, you know? And, and that was, that is a fanzine, right? Episode five, The Birth of Creation. Yes, welcome back to the Jamming Fanzine Podcast. I'm Tony Fletcher, and a long time ago, between 1977 and 86 to be precise, I published a music fanzine called Jamming. More recently, i.e. here, late 2021, at the time of recording, a book has just been published entitled The Best of Jamming, Selections and Stories from the Fanzine that Grew Up. It's got lots of lovely reprinted articles, contemporary contributions from those who were part of that journey, and a foreword by Sir Billy Bragg. Yeah, I know he's not knighted yet, but he is in my mind. Now, this podcast, we set it up, around the book, but it's not just here to promote the book. It's really an opportunity to have some conversations around the subcultures of those times with, yeah, sure, a focus on music fanzines, especially as I'm not aware of any other podcasts doing a similar thing. And to that end, over the course of the previous four episodes, we've had a pretty wide range of guests and topics, and I'm hoping you may have listened to those episodes, so I don't need to go over them. And if you haven't, welcome to the show, and please dive on back. However, for this particular episode, we are going to focus on something specific to jamming because you see way back in the spring of 1982, when I was 17 going on 18, I wrote an editorial for Jamming 13 called A Statement and it turned out to have a significant influence on, among other people, one Alan McGee, who was inspired to start a fanzine and a club night and a label all of his own as a result. That label, as you may well know, if you know his name, was called Creation Records, and it would become the home to the Jesus and Mary chain, My Bloody Valentine, Primal Scream and Oasis, just to name four out of probably hundreds of bands who were signed to the label over the decades. Along the way, Alan, and yes, that was his voice you heard at the front of the show, became something of a figurehead of the 1990s British music scene, and was just recently the subject matter of a movie named for his autobiography, Creation Stories, It's produced by Danny Boyle, directed by Nick Moran, and co-written by Irvine Welsh. By any standards, those are some serious credentials. Now, I haven't seen the movie because it's not yet available in the States where I live these days, but in the book Creation Stories, which came out quite a while ago, Alan was forthright about the importance of a statement. And so when I asked him to write something for the Best of Jamming book, he agreed. He suggested we just have a Zoom chat and I use what I want from that. We did. It turned into a longer conversation than just a few sentences that are in the book. And so you're going to hear that conversation coming up in this particular episode of our podcast. 
But then, call it serendipity if you like, right around that same time, I was approached by two Americans who were fans of creation. The names are Matt and Scott, and they were setting up a brand new podcast entitled 50 Years of Fun, setting about the marathon task of producing a separate episode for every one of creation's first 50 single releases plus two prequels, of which I was featured on the first because of this aforementioned a statement. Being perfectionists or artists or something similar, Scott and Matt then went and recruited the Californian singer-songwriter Rose Melberg, former member of the bands Tiger Trap, Softies and Ghost Sailor, as well as an established artist in her own right, to read a statement for their debut episode. So, the way we're going to construct this episode is, as a co-production with 50 Years of Fun, broken down into three parts. In part one, you will hear a statement, as read by Rose. In part two, you will hear my interview with Alan McGee about that A Statement, how it influenced him at the time and what it inspired him to do, and our own roles producing somewhat underground cultural artefacts that went overground. His, obviously, more so than mine. And in part three, you'll hear an edited version of 50 Years of Fun's interview with me. My thanks to Matt and Scott, and to Rose, of course, for allowing use of all this material, and I do encourage you to visit their podcast. It's up to single number six, and has managed to find and talk to members of every band released on Creation up to that point. One quick caveat about Rose's upcoming reading. In her initial sentence, she has me referring back to issue two of Jamming, which would have been dated February 78. In fact, the article reference was in issue 11, dated December 1980. A lot had gone on in the interim. For some reason, I used Roman numerals when bashing out a statement on my mum's typewriter. Don't ask why, I don't know. Anyway, with that said, and knowing we've got a lot of material to get through, let's get right to it. The Birth of Creation, with Alan McGee. Do you want to buy a copy of Jamming? A year and a half ago, in jamming number two, I wrote a one-page rant denying that rock and roll slash live music was dying. Those 18 months have proved me wrong. The first half of 1982 has been the worst period in ages for the clubs. But that doesn't mean I was wrong to say it was still alive. I just hadn't realized the surge of pop groups was so obvious, seeing it more as an alternative than a total coup. ABC, The Human League, Adam, Altered Images, Haircut 100, and more have all removed the importance of a group building up live. The music scene in the last 18 months has been totally different to what me and others had been used to or expected. However, I'm not going to be despondent. In fact, I'm now more optimistic over music than I ever have been. Jamming wouldn't really have been that valid over the last year. It would have been little more than an underground magazine pissing in the wind while the pop world, including its press, rejoiced in cocktails, yellow shorts, and good clean fun. Jamming missed the obvious, okay, but the press are missing the obvious fact that this will all die and something new will emerge. Pop music moves in cycles of four years, alternating between energy, change, and straight pop, making for eight-year cycles of each. Consider some facts. In 1956, Elvis and rock and roll breaks loose. Teenagers appear and go mad at the new noise. However, it doesn't seem to have been that affected with pop music still dominating the charts. But eight years after rock and roll's outbreak, the whole thing goes wild again as groups that were pre-teen in 56 have learned their instruments and lessons. And 1964 sees the Beatles, Stones, Who, Kinks, and more, more, more appear, ready to storm virtually the world. 
The 60s being what they were, everything moves at incredible pace, and by 1968, we're back around with energy again. Rock music is born. Four years later, we have another pop boom, perfectly worthwhile at the time, but ultimately fickle. A generation of kids get bored, they create punk, and in 76, start to smash things up. Move on another four years, it seems to have been useless, and the nation's obsessed with pop once more. So what am I suggesting? Basically, that there are a generation of youngsters about who are affected by punk, but were either too young to get out there and do something at the time, or were living in the country and couldn't get involved quickly. These people have learned over the years what punk meant. They haven't fallen for quick fashions or punk revivals, but have taken their time and are ready to start being noticed. There's no doubt that the pop music boom is on the decline. Sure, it will last a while yet, but Depeche Mode and Altered Images are already slipping, with more to follow within the next year. We're somewhere around 74, heading for the horrible grayness of 75, with the Human League as the new ABBA, willing to brighten the times with classic pop, and the Jam as the survivors. Long may they reign. You can shout crap, no one can predict the future. But I believe something is very gradually starting with people slowly returning to gigs to follow the groups that are beginning to emerge. It seems like the movement coming through this time won't be immediate, as punk was. Punk became a fashion, big labels signed the bands, and they all attacked at the same time. But there were no independents in 1976. Those have now built up to a commanding position. And that's the sort of thing I mean about learning from the last few years. Hopefully, the next surge will come through independently, starting to release singles now, though it may well be two years before they sell in large quantities. But the thing can be done ourselves, keeping control over what's going on. It's refreshing to see the number of groups about who consider themselves an idea in motion, determined to build it their way, however long it takes. And it will only be a gradual thing. Though occasional records are emerging, notably the first alarm single, It'll be the rest of this year and part of the next before it really gets going. However, if the groups do get as organized as I think they can, there's nothing to stop them coming through the moment the climate is right. So where does jamming fit into all of this? I honestly believe it's time to put my neck on the line and say I can sense something just beginning and that I want jamming there as a catalyst. I was too young to do anything in 77, but I've been involved for four and a half years now, and I've learned the history of the previous two. Jamming's been fun, it's tried to encourage, staying enthusiastic and committed. Yet even fanzines have died with the pop boom. I suppose it was inevitable. But we can learn from what happened and get it right from the start this time. Start working towards something now. Everyone. It won't be another rock and roll. It won't be another punk. But it could be something great. What I'll say here and now in print is that if none of this happens, then I'm the Wally and I'll get a nice quiet job somewhere. But it won't stop me trying. Optimism, hope. Those of you who thought 1980 through mid-1982 has been lacking something, read the above again. Start working towards your ideals and let's see if we can create something together. Let us know of any young group you think has the sus and we'll build up a network. Jamming won't stop writing about what is happening now with music that's of any worth because there's a fair bit about but I want it to be there and encourage what's going to happen. Welcome to a new jamming. Hey, Tony. How's it going, mate? You good? Yeah, rocking. Good, 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 good. Nice to see you. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, you've got, you, you're doing good. You, you've got, you got yourself really fat, didn't you? 
I run marathons and ultra marathons. Amazing. I'm out. I'm out on the trails a lot. Yeah, Brilliant. I really, really, I really, really did. It's it's actually a really big, big part of me. I even, um, yeah, I've even been doing a podcast about the outdoors, kind of travel and stuff this past Brilliant, year. Totally. Yeah, yeah, it's right. really, it's really good to have that. Do you? I was looking at your Instagram. Do you get out walking all the time? Is that your thing? Are you yeah, but I, you know how I done that. I lost the weight. I lost thirty five pounds during lockdown. I did it with a. I did it with a keto diet. Okay. No carbs, and it's yeah. just. I mean, it's fucking coming off me, man. It's still. I actually. I'm down to forty. I, I got big, Tony. I was sixteen and a half stone, and I, and I'm now fourteen dead. But I've caught a feeling with the keto. I can probably take it right down into. I could get to 13, but I might even get beyond that, do you know what I mean? That's pretty impressive to to lose that much. I know quite a people yeah. quite a lot of people swear by the keys. I've been vegan for years, so it's really hard, yeah, 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 hard yeah. to put. I know it's just it's just no carbs, you know. Yeah. And I'm six foot, Tony, so do you know what yeah. I mean? You know, so I could carry sixteen and a half and just about get away with it by a big beard, but it's a lot easier just not to be fucking fat. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the but I said, look, because I, 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 I owe you a bit of a debt with that magazine because I was rereading it. I can, I, 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 it's rereading it isn't really the point. I can remember where I was at when I read that, and I think I was quite lost. I'd come down to London, we, my group had kind of fallen apart. It was, I think it was early 82. Is that correct? It came out somewhere in the spring, late spring of 82, it came out. Yeah, yeah. I remember. I was quite lost. And uh, Andrew, who's in the primals, and me had come to London, and Andrew had uh, Andrew had got a uh, hepatitis, and, you know, through drugs, to be honest, call it what it is, right? And uh, I was lost. I was in London on my own, really. And I read, because of Paul Weller, he anointed you and went, went jamming. And I remember reading it because that's probably why I was reading German because of Paul Weller, to be honest. Do you know what I mean? And uh, and I just, it just spoke to me, Tony. It really and because because I was never a particularly talented person musically, but I had a great fucking passion, and your passion got me. And I remember at the height of creation, Britpop, and I think I told you it one day, and you were like. Tell other people, you know what I mean? Because I think you were a bit shocked because I know that you knew. And I was, no, the reason I got creation together, because you were going, you, I think you said roughly, the way I remember it, it was, it was a roughly like, start a, start a band. If you can't, can't start a band, put somebody's records out. And if you can't put somebody's records out, put some shows on, but don't sit in your fucking arse because you're just going to get old and fucking fat just get on with it and fucking try and put something in rather than take something out. That's the way I remember that article. Is that correct? It is pretty, it is pretty much. I mean, basically I was a very energetic 17 year old at the time yeah. with, with the platform <laughs> and doing a lot of stuff. And I just, yeah. wanted, I wanted other people to do it as well. And I was kind yeah. of, I was genuinely trying to see the, the, that the, the light through sort of a, a darker woods where there was all the synth pop bands starting up. And I really, yeah, right. I really wanted to be like, look, we can get through this, you know, go out and do something. And uh, every now and then you get sparked up. I mean, I, putting this book together, 
you know, I love the energy of the fanzines. I can't bear to read the writing because it's, you know, it's a kid and it's a kid whose grammar's all over the place. Well, and I, was you know, but, but, there, Tony. I was reading it, you know, and I stopped reading it because I went, because like, that's not the way I remember it. When yeah. I was a kid myself, when I was, I was in 82, I was 21, right? And, and I read it and it spoke to me. And that's all you really need to know. Yeah. The way, it's not even what the words that you were saying. The feeling you conveyed was that punk was still alive. To me, being a wee punk rocker for Glasgow, and being there since 76 punk, and it was just, oh, somebody else. Because everything had went in music, everything else had went pop, hadn't it? And even the jam. It was, was all going pop, up. yeah. Yeah. And it was like, and it was beat surrender time, wasn't it? And all that sort of stuff. Do you know what I mean? And, uh, and the world had went kind of haircut 100, not slagging them off, but you know. No, but I think I named them. I think I named them in that. But no, it was it, the whole yeah. thing had gone. It was ABC, maybe Kajaguga haircut 100. It was. Yeah, well, the bottom that. line is, Tony, if, if, if it had only been haircut 100 and ABC, they were great pop bands, mm -hmm. actually, to be completely honest. But, uh, but from where we were coming from for the punk thing, I suppose that was quite wet from where we were all coming from. And uh, but jamming was great. And I remember putting you on in my club and you'd you were just a kid, but you fucking believed it and it was good. Yeah. So, you know, I mean that was all it was great, you know. Are you younger than me by quite a long way? Are you five years younger than yeah, me? Yeah, I think I am because I was, right, like, I that's was crazy. 17, What's 18, more but... crazy is I was twenty one and you'd be sixteen or seventeen. And I was getting the fire off you, which is fucking unbelievable. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I I often look back on that, and I just I I think it's just right place, right time. You know, being thirteen, fourteen. I often say to people, <laughs> if if punk rock had happened when I was sixteen, I'd have been a sixteen-year-old starting a fanzine. It wasn't it wasn't because I was thirteen. It was because of seventy-seven and being in London and being at yeah, school. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. think I was amazing. I, I think that's what it is. The um, I was actually I was looking at your um, your memoir before calling you and it, it it makes a lot of sense because you're saying that around that time you and you say you were a bit lost but you understood you gradually understood that you had that ability to organize people so whether yeah, it man. was so you were finding your own feet so you because you did a fanzine didn't you yeah yeah, yeah. and and no, like, i did a, i did i did a band and then i did i did a club yeah. and a fanzine at the same time yeah and i and the club eventually went into for you. You did the communication club with your little bands, eh, yeah. guys? And but the club eventually morphed into the living room, and that funded creation. Right. But but would I would I have started a fanzine and a, a, a club without reading that? I have to say I probably wouldn't. Have, do you know what I mean? <laughs> but you fired me up, and I thought he's right. Let, let's have a go. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I suppose when you try something a few times, you eventually get it right. And that's kind of eventually what happened. The, the first steps were rubbish. But I suppose by the eighth time I tried to put somebody on, I was getting good at it. And then by, do you know what I mean? By the, yeah. by the 12th record that I put out on my label, I found the Jesus and Mary chain. So yeah. 
you know what I mean? I mean, you have to put, you have to, you have to fucking, you have to fail to succeed. Absolutely. You know I mean? And as I say, the first issues of jamming are, I mean, fortunately, most of them were just a school fanzine, but they're pretty embarrassing to look at. And then gradually, <laughs> you know, gradually it comes together. At first, you're letting all your schoolmates write about Russian Led Zeppelin. And then gradually you're like, no, that's, you know, like I've got a vision. I've got a vision yeah. for this. And you, um, and you push that vision through. And I think something that you and I had in common is that we were willing to try different things. So jamming put on gigs, you know, and I had a label. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I had my band and it wasn't like I want to do everything as much as I at least want to try everything. You, you, yeah, you know, yeah. there's what, what's, if you've got a fanzine and your fanzine could help you put on a good gig, why not do that? And having oh, yeah, a band yeah. was always an intent anyway. I do remember one, I don't know if you remember this, but I remember one time and it, I think it was only once, and it would have been right around there. You actually came into the jamming office at Nomis. I don't and, remember it. Yeah, you did to have a chat. And I was the kind of person, if you called me up and said, um, you know, can I come in and talk to you? I'd say, yeah, come on yeah. in. And you came in and you, I, I don't remember if you had at that point fanzine band, not the label. Yeah. I, do, I do remember you couldn't have been too far with the band because you, you were like, you were saying maybe we should go like practice, you know, like, like get our guitars together or something. So it must have been right <laughs> around when you, Came to London, the jamming label was starting. I remember yeah, I was yeah, at yeah. Nomis, but I um, tried to sign to Paul Weller's label. I, he, I've never told him this because I kind of know him a little bit now, not very well, but but I, he, in a way, I don't really want to know Paul Weller, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, not sure. that I think he's a bad guy, I think he's a great guy, right? But I don't really want to know him because it would spoil something in my childhood, Alan, if I actually became his proper friend. But I know him a little bit, right? And uh. I've never told him. I ran into him about last year sometime at a clockwork show, right? And, 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 I, and I, I've never told him that I tried to sign to him. And he used to write back to me because he kind of liked my songs. <laughs> <laughs> at least, yeah. I mean, he was good about writing back. There was a point at which... He um, was. There was a point at which I remember him, they did a big American tour in 82 and he just, he came back from it. And because we had the label going, he probably got more demo tapes than ever. And he just came into my, my little office in, you know, floor down from the jams office at Nomis, which I do remember you coming in and sitting with me one day and you just brought in three plastic bags of cassettes. And he's like, there's no way I'm listening to these. You can, you can listen to them. This is like, <laughs> he picked up like three complete carrier bags of cassettes on an American tour. <laughs> pretty funny but yeah no it's good to get that i mean i know that it's been in a couple of books you were kind enough to put it in your book and it, and, and david cavana did it in his own way yeah, in yeah, his yeah. book but i realized through when as putting this um compendium together it'd be really nice to get something from you and a whole bunch of people yeah, uh contributors but musicians have, as well have put in little memories jamming was important man i mean it was important to me it's these things it's like my little fancy in communication blah it was probably important to some other people, do you know what I mean? It's like it's n nobody's really the keeper of the message. Everybody inspires everybody else. Do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And it's like that's just what you find out as you get older. And it's like I'm sure that I only did 500 copies of my little fans in two, two times, put it out. But in a way, that's who I really... When I started a label, I identified as a fanzine kid that, that happened to run, be, able, be good at running a record label. Yeah. That was it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Kind Which of is kind of unique, but that but that's, that's who I was, you know? Yeah, I found your corner with it. And then the other thing that possibly we, there was in common is, you know, jamming built and creation built. And both, you know, 
creation became something more than an indie label and jamming became a lot more than a fanzine. And those are, those are things yeah. you have to develop through and, and go through. Yeah. So in both those senses, I guess the, whatever those, whether they were talent, skills, or just bullshit that we yeah. each had. Yeah, there was enough But you know, to but bring you know the through. thing was, about that time, it was like, it was very difficult to kind of go on and 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 and, and, and accept the fucking, the, the bigness and the success, because we were all coming out of punk, and it was kind of not applauded to to grow. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah and that was, that was a big one, because people would look down their nose at you at every stage in the way as if you'd sold out and you'd be like no, I'm letting people in mate do you know what I mean yeah ab- absolutely you know I mean I may, might never have been able to work out to now I mean probably what I was trying to do do you know what I mean yeah well, I'm glad I you, you know it's funny to to look back I am glad to know it was an inspiration and I definitely didn't oh, know it at so. the time I found out like about 10 10 15 years down the line when I did run into I remember you and we you had told a conversation me. yeah in the 90s I think you came up to me at some music event business thing and you went, oh, you should tell people. Because at that time, I think I had like, we were number one everywhere with the, with the Oasis band. And, uh, and and I think you were like, oh, you should tell people. And I, and I think I did after that. I went, oh, okay, I will, you know. You did after that, yeah, because uh, I remember David Cavana calling me for when he wrote the, that that yeah, massive book. And then, yeah. uh, and then you put it in yours as well. So, I mean, it is, yeah, yeah. it is. It's good. It's appreciated, and uh, and it's right. nice to know it could have that have that effect. And and you know, that's largely yeah. it. There's a few good pieces on the creation bands. There's a couple of profiles that might make it into the book. It's very much a best of, and it's it's focused yeah, on the fanzine yeah. days. But it's it's yeah, looking yeah. really good. It's going to be a, a fun a fun venture. So great, right, mate. lovely. Until... Take care, Alan. Bye bye now. Bye. Cheers. Tony Fletcher. Glad to be here. Very excited to have you. We've been talking about this piece in Jamming Magazine and its influence on Alan McGee in 1982. Can you paint us a picture of what was happening in music in 1982 and what inspired you to write this? I'd been running a fanzine since the end of 77 and kind of came into its own more later in 78. And... I was very, very young, and with being very, very young, I was extremely passionate and energetic and idealistic, which is a good thing when you're that age. And certainly, you know, I grew up and got to go around London to the most incredible gigs in, in what's subsequently been called the post-punk world. Nobody called it that at the time. And things had just been amazing. You'd just go to gigs in rooms above pubs, at YMCA's, inside pubs, at the Acclam Hall, at the Marquee. Just saw so much great music, so much music. People were putting out their own records. And um, I'd started running a record label with Paul Weller. And that was great as well. But And I was around the jam, and that was great as well. But something was definitely changing around 81, 82, and synth-pop was coming in. And it was evident it was coming in. It had come in in a big way. And music was definitely changing, getting more commercial. And I would have to look at the charts and tell you exactly which records have been hits by, by 
you know, the point that I wrote that article. But I could, I could feel that things were changing. And I guess what I was doing in my, my you know, joyously naive and optimistic 17, 18-year-old manner was saying, no, let's stay the course. Let's, you know, punk happened. Punk was wonderful. Music changes every few years. We're all set up for a wonderful revolution. There's going to be greatness to come if we, if we, you know, everybody get out and do something. I've, I've reread this of late, not least because we're putting together a best of jamming book, and I, I cringe at just about everything I wrote back then. <laughs> I guess I, but I guess I don't cringe about the, the person who wrote it and and the enthusiasm that they felt um, for music in general and sort of independent alternative culture in general. And I think, in short, as an initial um, summary, I think that's what I was really trying to, trying to get across, trying to spur other people on. Yeah, and you know, I was actually noticing when I read was reading it that I I felt inspired by it, and I've and I've read we've been reading a lot of I mean, Communication Blur obviously is very passionate. That's a very big aspect of punk and post punk writing is a lot of passion. Um, something about this piece it 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 goes further to me. It it, it lays out a it lays out a full idea. I mean, it's kind of saying, hey, punk is an energy that goes through all types of music, and yes, we all went crazy when it went through rock and roll and became everybody can do it but expect don't expect that that's not let's not just try and capture the vapors of that it's going to land on something else and and it's going to be you're going to just going to be another scene that feels inclusive and like you're a part of it and it seemed like it lit a lit a fuse more than just put an idea out it was like i know you're all thinking about this or i hope you are let's all do it at once and see what happens that's kind of what i took from it and i can see why alan who already had the you know he had it at, at he already did some labels and he he had these things at his disposal but it, it seemed like it just pushed him and it probably pushed a lot of people. Yeah, I'd like to believe so. The jamming had been pretty successful. It had been enormously successful. And what happened with this particular issue was that I had landed on this Paul McCartney interview. Um, but I had also been running the record label and that was just ridiculous. It was full time. Um, it was more than full time. And I had a band. So the fanzine didn't come out for a long time. And when it did, uh, we printed up a lot of copies, partly because of the McCartney interview and the profile it had because of the record label. So there were a lot of people out there to read this. I think we printed at least 12,000 copies. That was a jump up from wow. 4,000, maybe three to 4,000. Uh, they didn't all sell at the time, but it did sell very, very well. My friend Robin Richards, who's passed away subsequently, moved up from just designing the cover to designing whole chunks of the magazine including the background of that statement and so it, we had kind of the platform to have that kind of effect and you know i don't want to i really genuinely don't want to put too much on my own to you know take too much credit for for anything at all i what i do know is that my energy and enthusiasm got me a long way and i think that comes that comes across and I am obviously really happy to know that it had that effect on Alan. I didn't find, I sort of did know and didn't know, and I'm happy to go into that now or later if you want. I sort of did and didn't know that Alan was affected by it. And it seems like it was probably also an, a, 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 a cool factor of that the magazine was established, but it was still very punk energy, whether spirit, whether it's, that was what it was writing about or not. I mean, that's, that gives you hope that you can retain that even 
you know, because I think that's what, that's what a lot of people were let down about about a lot of the synth pop is I think some people, I mean, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, I think some of that started as being having a spirit of punk. It just sounded different and very quickly went big, big money and big label. It's and really, sort of it, you're absolutely right. It's it's a very, very quick transition when you think about acts like OMD being on. I've, I, I think they were on Factory to yeah, begin factory. with. At some point, they're on Factory. And yeah. suddenly, two, three singles in, it's a pop duo. Soft Cell, I give Soft Cell a lot of credit, but man, they exploded quickly. And. Uh, Depeche Mode, of course, on Mute Records, which Mute was this experimental, very, very experimental synth pop, well, just synth electronic label that happened to discover the one band in the south of England that was out gigging and doing things oddly in a quite traditional way with untraditional instruments. And that took off. So you're completely right. Some of those bands came out of the spirit of punk, but they embraced the trappings and the trimmings of fortune and fame very very quickly all of these it didn't take more than two or three singles to feel that omd were over there that depeche yeah, mode yeah. were over there and and i i was not consciously anti-synths i really don't think i i was not at all actually but i was always very much anti the the trappings and trimmings of that fortune and fame for me it was always about the music and it was always about the spirit and i agree with you yeah, I've got it right here, and I've I've been going through these back issues for the reason that I mentioned, and I like that that issue of jamming. It's partly fanzine, and it's but it's also quite polished. You know, it's printed on good paper. It's there's a really nice print to it, and Robin did some amazing designs. But all of it is typed. It was all done on a <laughs> typewriter. There's no typeset, and there's still yeah. handwriting. There's it, parts of it are still illegible, which was something that we carried on pretty much through to the end. There was always one <laughs> one page everywhere where we managed to screw things up, and you couldn't read it, or something went wrong. So it's definitely got the spirit. It's got the spirit of punk, even and right down to I. I really liked it was Robin's choice to have a uh, picture of the Beatles in Hamburg on the front cover. Not, yeah, you know, and actually a picture with Stu, not with Ringo. And I think that spoke to their rock and roll roots as opposed to, look, we've got an interview with a guy who's just put out Ebony and Ivory. It wasn't yeah. that. It was like, we've got an interview with one of the original rockers. Yeah, yeah and it just it just says that this is our, our vision and we're going to stick to it and we don't have, this is a, there are rules, but they're not rules. Mm-hmm. I'm just struck that, so you're 18 when you wrote this and you have this whole hypothesis about like the rock and roll cycle or just like uh, the quality of music cycle kind of. And it's really fascinating. I'm just impressed like that you came up with this at 18. Yeah, I probably wrote it at 17 because that issue got delayed uh, for a bunch of reasons, but it got delayed. There's a very good chance I wrote it at 17, but either way, either way, yes, I, you know, I can look back on it now. I, you know, on one hand, I was a horribly precocious little kid and um, to some degree, A, I must have been really annoying and B, <laughs> B um, there, there were certain things I was carrying at school that I, I sort of don't wish on other people. I don't know what kind of gene I got, but in the early days at school, I seemed to be able to do it all. And there, there was a certain burden with that. I couldn't do the sports. So, I mean, it wasn't everything, but there was a certain burden with that. And I think that's why I was already madly into music from, from day one, from like being born. But when punk happened, I really kind of 
<clears throat> switched over to that because I think it freed me up from these expectations people had on me. But the, the point maybe is I'd been studying music since I started listening to the radio at seven, started buying records at eight, went to my first concerts at the age of 11. But at the age of 12, I was going to shows on my own. Um, at the age of 12, I went to see The Who at Charlton Athletic on my own, 80,000 people. I mean, I know what you're going to think about parenting, and you're kind, of, say, you're kind of right. I, <laughs> I was going to say, I wish with, they were my parents. <laughs> oh, man. Well, you know, I've got this memoir, Boy About Town, in which my mother is absolutely the hero slash heroine of the book. I mean, she's the coolest mom, but there is also this part of what the hell was she thinking? And so I had a lot of experience with this, and my mother was an English teacher and a, and, and a chorister. My dad was a music professor and a, and. Um, I don't know if he'd written a book by then. He ended up writing a couple of books. I was I was disconnected from them musically, particularly my dad. And they my parents were divorced, and I didn't get on with my dad. And there's a lot of connections. I realized pretty much every you ended up working at jamming had the same issue. Uh, I think that's not an un, uncommon thread. You don't have a dad around, and you're gravitating mm. to father figures. You don't realize it at the time uh, because you're only you know, you're young and you can't register that but you realize down the line that a lot of this is you're out searching and seeking and trying to find a male voice that will speak to you because you don't have that male voice at home but all of those things put together I'd had a lot of practice and so um, and I was I was totally cocky enough to come up with theories that, that would or would not stand the stand some kind of secondary investigation let alone the, the test of time I mean, I was certainly a music nerd at 17, but I was not coming up with my own musical theories about how rock and roll works. <laughs> so that's just kind of amazing to me, just thinking about like, wow, like this guy really had it. This guy yeah, was you, really onto something. Yeah, well, one thing to say to that is that we grew up uh, quicker in Britain than in America. Hmm. By, by several years, we were all leaving school at 16. Um, Yes, maybe some people went on to college at uh, at 18. Even there, the college was three years. And uh, everybody in my band left school at 16. I was at a grammar school, which is meant to be the better schools. Um, they're not fee-paying schools. They're, they're just this weird in-between school. My, my grammar school went state school in the middle of me being there, which is a whole other story. But what I'm trying to say is that I wasn't, I went to what was meant to be the uh, a, a reasonable school and I think about two-thirds of us left school at 16 to go out and get jobs and go out into the world so people were playing in bands from a very young age people were engaged in music from a very very young age what I learned about coming from coming to America and then particularly falling in love with a, what what we call the college rock scene was that for Americans you, you for uh, this may still be true people were at home until they're 18 and yeah. they finish high school that's a given you're a dropout if you leave earlier and then you hope to go to college when you get to college that's where you find your real peer group that's when you form a band and my one of my possibly my favorite group in the world rem textbook story of that that's how that's how it happens it means that you're in your 20s by the time you're putting out music we grow in that punk generation uh, we were just in a hurry. Everybody seemed to be young, with the exception of Joe Strummer and the Stranglers. And everybody was rushing to put out music before they were 21 and old. And, you, you know, you just, you looked at the idea of staying on at school till you were 18 or, God forbid, going off to college. It would be, I'm going to miss the best years of my life here. Um, and I've sort of reflected on that a lot over the years because part of me would like to have actually gone to college 
but just not in those years. <laughs> you yeah. know, it wasn't right <laughs> in, in you know, 1982 for me to say, oh, now I'm going to go off to college for three years and abandon my band, my record label, and my fanzines. It wasn't, it wasn't going to happen. But I, that's, my, that's my theory on that. So as you can see, I, I've, I developed other theories down the line. But that one, I think, <laughs> actually does stand, stand, up to, stand up to some scrutiny. When you started the zine at 13, which is really impressive, but I'm curious, like, what what was going on and what was your inspiration in that, at that time? There, it's really straightforward. There was an article in Sounds. It was written by John Savage. We, um, it was about fanzines. It was the center pages. I think it was September 77. And his thing was very similar to what I, you're talking about with me that I wrote sort of four and a half, five years later. And it was a... There's a key quote in there that said something is better than nothing. I think he listed these sort of 10 or 20 points about fanzines. And I probably didn't get any further than him writing something is better than nothing. And I looked at these collage of all these fanzines, these Xerox fanzines, and I just thought, that sounds like fun. I mean, it was as simple as that. And famously, I mean, to the extent that anybody cares about this story, but I've certainly said it enough. I mean, I was sitting in a math lesson at school doing the classic reading under the desk. I mean, bored of the maths already at just 13 and and uh, reading, whether it was my copy of Sounds or not, I don't know, but I, I, uh, I was reading it under the desk and I came out of that lesson and asked my friend John Matthews, who's still my friend to this day, do you want to do a fanzine with me? And uh, I think he's still wondering why he said no because he would have been perfect because he has actually still to this day the hippest got the hippest music taste of anybody my age i know he's he's ridiculously well connected and hip but he said no ask why don't you ask lawrence and lawrence uh was into hard rock his dad actually ran or was head of the big security company in london so he got to go to lots of shows so we started out actually doing more of a hard rock fanzine than a punk fanzine which is why i say it took a year it took a year to get going properly Hmm. And that that interview with Mark Perry, which you posted on your site, is is amazing. And it's really uh, you really have some guts. Like you're asking some kind of challenging questions for a 14 year old kid. I think you don't know better when you're that age. That's the that's the great thing about youth. You're too dumb to know that you need to be polite and respectful. You just kind of come out and just you just yeah. You know, I do look back on some of that. And these days, I do interviews with people, and I work up towards the difficult questions. I mean, you can almost feel the interview ramp up. In those days when you're young, you just you just don't know better. I doubt that Mark Perry cared. I mean, some other people might have been thrown out a little bit or thrown off a little bit, but Mark he, Perry he almost, obviously... He almost invited it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he came from that school. He's the one who did the... Um, you know, obviously encouraged a lot of people to start fanzines, but that would... And, and funny enough, I mean, he's South London, not far from me, but it, that hadn't reached me. What reached me was the weekly music press doing this story on fanzines right at the point that I started buying the weekly music papers. And I may have borrowed that copy. I don't know. Um, I could have borrowed it off John, John Matthews for all I know, because he seemed to somehow have the, the pocket money to buy more than one music paper a week. But I, I only found out about Sniffing Glue really through reading that piece in sounds and i find it kind of interesting it was john savage that wrote that because he turned into a uh, you know an amazing journalist um but i i never really think of him as being this sort of spiky punky fanzine kind of person and um, and and it was a shock when i was able to go back and and see that it, it was john savage who wrote that uh, because equally that piece had the influence on me and so i guess you know generationally a few years later down the line i'm doing my own little thing it has a it has an effect on somebody else like alan yeah i mean i just i just love that you're actually kind of 
kind of pushing him on a couple of things like why did you kick this guy out of the band or why did this happen and where those are the kinds of questions that i would want to ask someone that i'd probably be terrified to do but you're you're just out there out there doing it yeah well the other thing is also when you're kids you can you can also get away with that so not only do you not know any better but you can get away with it because yeah i mean he probably thought it was cool you were 14 too <laughs> In he would have thought that, and then, and what's somebody going to do to a fourteen-year-old? I mean, the worst <laughs> they're going to say is, uh, I think a year or so later, I was doing a second interview with the Jam, and we got very comfortable with the Jam, and a couple of my friends were there, and it's a pretty funny interview because uh, I'm challenging them on some things, and they they end up saying, yeah, you know, Paul says, yeah, it is kind of easy for you kids just to be here and you know call us on this, but you're not in our shoes, and. And there's truth to that. So there's a point at which somebody will, will, will catch you on it. And I think Paul was able to do that because he knew me better at that point. But when you're, when you're 14, especially if your voice hasn't even broken, nobody's going to give you too hard a time for asking a tough question. <laughs> yeah. I remember being, you know, 20 or 21 and interviewing bands that I was, you know, pretty excited about. But um, yeah, I'm curious when you were 13, that must have been kind of mind blowing for some bands. Were there any what were the bands where you were just you know shaking in your shoes the the obvious ones would have been the first two big interviews that i did which i mean it's amazing that the first interview i did with any musician was the person the the person i most looked up to out of the whole punk new wave thing which was paul weller and it's only about three interviews later that i interviewed my all-time idol pete townsend and I doubt if it would have gotten more scary than that. I interviewed McCartney was obviously a really big deal, like and an incredibly big deal because he hadn't been doing interviews. So he he hadn't been doing interviews since Lennon had been sadly killed. He was just starting them up, but that wasn't even why he's why he was doing this particular one. Um, McCartney did an amazing job of putting me at ease and. I think I was probably intensely nervous about going up to the studio to meet the jam um, or to meet Weller. He was the only one in the studio that day. And I think everybody did their best to put me at ease. We're, when we did Townsend, four of us got together to go across South London. And we could never, I mean, the buses were terrible. The tubes were terrible. You'd have to leave like two hours early. And that's also not part of being a school kid. So we showed up an hour late with a posse. I remember Pete saying, I didn't realize you were going to bring a posse. <laughs> and, and we got there and his, uh, his assistant, who is still his assistant, actually, wow. Nicola, saying, you guys are an hour late. He's doing something else. <laughs> but there's four of us. We said, well, I had to wait for my mate. And then, he had, and then we had to wait for somebody else. And then we had to wait. And then we had to wait for the bus. And then we had to wait you for the tube. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, somehow Pete found time for us and gave us an hour, hour and a half. So people were very, very, very good to me, to us. And I think most of them remember what it was like. It's, uh, McCartney said this to me. And at this point, I was 17. So I was, I was considerably you know, a little bit older. But he said, I remember what this was like. I remember waiting outside the Liverpool, whatever, you know, the ABC to meet the crew cuts. He specifically cited the crew cuts. So I waited outside the backstage door and when they came out, I got chatting with them and they let me walk with them back to the hotel. It was, it meant the world to me that, that a band would speak to me. So he's like, Hey, here I am far away. Ask me questions. That's so great. Going, going back for a moment to, to the statement 
you have this theory, which we talked about before, about these like four eight-year cycles. And this was written in 82. Did it play out? Did it get better in 84? Did, did things come around again? No. Yes and no. What was really interesting is that when... Well, one one thing that was one thing that was really interesting. I mean, at the end of '82, the jam broke up, and every, the jam was so big in Britain. It's hard to explain or get somebody to understand how big they were. They were enormously successful, popular. Their breaking up was like the Beatles breaking up after three, four albums. Like, guys, you got more in you, and they did have more in them. But anyway, they broke up, and everybody was sort of trying to bet. Make particularly in the music business, was trying to place bets on who would be succeeding the jam and pretty much everybody got it wrong it was the smiths and it, the smiths were on rough trade and i think that is not a small deal by any way shape or form that this label this scrappy label that uh you came was run out of a record shop that sold fanzines i would spend a lot of time in the back rooms and upstairs of that at that place and it was chaos it was always chaos and that that label record uh, label record shop distribu distributor got to build and have the band that then became the biggest band you know the most important band in Britain of the 80s so that was not a small deal obviously it took creation a lot longer to come up with Oasis but creation were having hits with Jesus and Mary chain in yeah. the 80s uh, Go Discs was independent with Billy Bragg and the House Martins uh, and you know it's it's an odd one I think most people I know have enormous always did have enormous respect for daniel miller and mute records like even if they didn't love depeche mode or thought erasure were very very commercial they had utmost respect for the fact that he was selling enormous num amounts of records as an entirely independent label factory had the success with new order and uh, new order charted and then they had the biggest 12 inch sing selling biggest selling 12 inch single in the world factory was an independent out of that era. So a lot of that actually did come to fruition. Uh, you know, jam I mean, I don't think this is remotely comparable, but Jamming went ahead and became a mainstream magazine, became a monthly after a period. So a lot of that kind of did hold up. I tend to look on the mid-80s as a dark period because of Thatcherism. Mm. And and the, the, the artists that I really loved, most of them were reflecting those hard times. The Smiths were this in wonderful exception because Morrissey was reflecting those hard times and yet the music was really joyous. And everybody who thought the Smiths were not joyous was they were the depressed ones because the fans the fans thought the music was oh, joyous. Sure, sure yeah. it definitely was. Yeah, so it was a misunderstanding on the part of the people who weren't part of the Smiths audience to begin with. But they were an exception. And when you listen to... Um, I mean, actually, the House Martins made very cheerful music, but there's a lot that of the mid '80s that, to me, becomes darker because of the period we were going through. The miners' strike in Britain was a big, heavy, heavy, heavy deal. Um, it was it was a low-grade civil war that went on for a year. And interestingly, I, when she was elected the third time, I was kind of done and trying to find my way to America and succeeded. But right around that time. Acid House happened. Well, House happened in America, then in Chicago. Then Acid House happened in the UK. Then the whole rave scene took off. And so to the extent that I actually got that wrong, the 10 years later was actually Acid House. And I think if you do go 
to the UK and you try and draw a line in the UK, I think you'll find it's more like every 10 years and you, you, you do see this, this line. So people sometimes say to me, because I've written books subsequently, I got, when I did the book on Wilson Pickett, I got a lot of questions about, well, what's a white Brit doing writing about Wilson Pickett? And I'm like, because that's part of the British lineage. That's, there are people who mm -hmm. are my friends who will go sort of rock and roll, you know, 60s music, which includes all the soul and the British bands, punk, rave. And so a lot of the, uh, the, the figures, the key figures in the rave scene were ex-punks. And uh, that, that's a very, very, very clear line to me. So I actually believe that the next real generation that came through was about 10 years later, and it was Acid House, the rave scene. And that was the next time that I saw Britain excited. In fact, I've never actually ever seen the country so excited. I was coming back from the States, and at the, punk was an outlier. Punk was really quite marginal, and punks were getting attacked by other people on the streets. Um, you know, Johnny Rotten you know famously got got slashed and uh you know there was a lot of antagonism you had to be brave to be a punk you didn't have to be brave to be a raver the whole country went rave it was amazing whole country was just went acid house smiley culture for a year or two i mean it was it was really really bizarre that was and to me that's the last really big scene that i've been aware of if you don't count the the sort of subcultures that come out of all these m major 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 moments and i i would love to me there's a a conversation I've never really gotten to the bottom of of why don't we have more things like that it's an that's an ongoing conversation I yeah, think yeah it, it is it is strange I agree yeah I mean there was grunge but grunge wasn't British grunge was American right, right. and there was Britpop but Britpop was it's, it was sort of very you know it happened but I don't know that that was necessarily a nationwide movement I think it was like more like a nationwide craze for a little yeah. period Right, and it, it, there's a bit of gazing back. Uh, I mean, it's 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 based on something that already happened, in a sense, I guess you could say. Um, so it seems like from the statement that that's sort of the thing that was the most the most the, the most clear point uh, that happened is that the is that the independent labels were more set up to compete with the majors than they were when punk happened. Like just by saying like the mute and rough trade were were better positioned to to deal with a bigger band. Would you say that's the case? Yeah, they were able to... Well, I think a lot of the bands that came through wanted to have that personal relationship and keep it. So people like Depeche Mode, Erasure, continued to trust Daniel Miller. Uh, New Order continued to trust Tony Wilson. And the Smiths trusted... Well, Johnny Marr trusted Jeff, Jeff Travis all the way down the line at Rough Trade. And if you've ever had any dealings with the majors, I mean... You know, they can't change their ways. They are all, it's all market driven. It's all money driven. Mm -hmm. It's all research driven. And the moment you sign with them, the, the exceptions, the, the, the artists who've been able to do what they want on major labels are so few and far between that people sometimes think, oh, that's how it is. No, they're, they're the exceptions that prove the rule that right. majors typically don't know their ass from their elbow. And, uh, and they will destroy more vans than they will ever break. And so... I, I, I've always given credit to those groups that have stuck with independence and stuck with the people who got them where they were in the first place. And uh, a lot of the time when you speak to those people, if you speak to them, they seem pretty com comfortable with having done that. I understand everybody who's sort of chased, chased the money, but, uh, but I think when we look back, we're, we're more likely to talk about our new orders and our Depeche modes than we are about 
a lot of other groups that came through a sort of that, synth pop. That's 80s. a good point. That's a good point. People, people can still sense the sort of independent spirit of those bands or the the inspiring spirit. Yeah, of those and bands. when I was um, doing my book on on the Smiths, Johnny Marr was making his point very very vehemently that he was saying if you pick up a Smith single cover from that era, you know it's not on a major label. He said yeah. before you look at the back and see Rough Trade. <laughs> You know, he he he's he. We were having a good discussion about this. He said, "You know, a major label they they just wouldn't have it. It just looked indie. It yeah, looked same indie. graphic would not look the same. <laughs> it would not. It would have been tidied up just enough. Yeah. <laughs> so so cool. I mean, there was so much to talk about. We you know we didn't even have time to talk about how our guest has climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. <laughs> Another time. I know. You can come with me next time. <laughs> I, I, I'm gonna have to. Bring I'm gonna have screen. to run a little bit more. <laughs> um, but we we really appreciate your time, Tony. It's been super fun, and um, we may have to ask you to come back again. All right. Well, I like love doing it. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Matt. Yeah. Thank, you thank you so much. Luck with the whole thing. Cheers, right. guys. You can hear the full unedited version of that interview on episode one of the 50 Years of Fun podcast. My thanks to Matt and Scott for hosting me, for doing such a great job with the interview and for taking on this ridiculously marathon mammoth task of documenting every one of the first 50 creation singles. And then just a couple of quick observations. And obviously one of them is, hey, thank you if you're still listening. Hope you really got something out of that. It's not meant to be just about me. But you know what? I do give a fair few interviews, especially when a book comes out. And uh, this is the one. This is the one I'm going to go back to and say, if you want to know my story, that's my story. But let me just tell you, uh, my old band was not called Zeitgeist. There was a band called Zeitgeist on the Jamming Records label. And uh, my band was called Apocalypse. It was also on the Jamming label. And we played with Zeitgeist at Allen's Club called the Communication Club. So totally understandable mistake. Uh, there was a third group on the label as well called Rudy. They were the original band on Good Vibrations out of Belfast. And there will be a future podcast in which I talk to Brian Young from Rudy and Jaff, the singer from Zeitgeist. And we'll talk about how the label fitted into the scheme of things. Give us a chance to talk about some independent record releases. Additionally, there's another episode coming down the line with some more former contributors from Jamming, including Bruce Dessau, who wrote extensively about creation acts for Jamming, and in fact found himself on tour at one point on assignment for us in Germany with the Jesus and Mary chain and ended up performing on stage as a stand-in for one of them. Um, Yeah, the lines were very blurred back then. In fact, everything was pretty blurry back then. It was just the times, as you'll probably know if you've seen Creation Stories. I think the trailer suggested enough to me that uh, it will show plenty of um, boozing and partying. Let me put it that way. We do have lots more wonderful episodes coming up. They drop every two weeks and the next one will be launching actually on the day that the book launches worldwide. It's been out in the UK since late September 2021, but as of December 2nd, it will be out in the rest of the world. And we're going to have myself sitting down for a one-on-one, which is lovely in this sort of uh, almost post-COVID environment, touch wood, touch wood. Um, I sat down with Russell Young, the photographer, and Chris Heath, the writer. Both of those people, whose names are pretty well known, to be quite honest, got their start at jamming. Um, Yeah, I know. And both of them, like myself, ended up exporting themselves to the USA. Russell was in New York City right around when the book was published. He lives in California. 
I had not actually spoken or seen Chris Heath for 35 years. It was a thrill to do so. We got together. It was so lovely to see people. And that has been a really nice thing about circling back after all these decades, back to the story of jamming. Um, I'm not really looking to republish a fanzine or anything, but I've got to tell you, I am thoroughly enjoying reconnecting with people. And one other thing, you heard me talking about my old school friend, John Matthews. He was on the first episode of this podcast, From Classroom to the Clubs, or From Classroom to Clubs, as was Richard Hurd, whose cockney voice you hear up front on the introduction, and Jenny DeHart, who will be the last voice that you'll hear on this podcast because she is doing the credits. Take care out there. Bye-bye. This episode of the Jamming Fanzine podcast was produced by Tony Fletcher. Greg Morton provided editing assistance and designed the logo. The Jamming Fanzine podcast theme was written, recorded and produced by Noel Fletcher. The book, The Best of Jamming, Selections and Stories from the Fanzine that Grew Up, 1977 to 86, is published by Omnibus Press and is available right now across Europe and then in the rest of the world from the 2nd of December 2021. For more information, please visit tonyfletcher.net or omnibuspress.com. Check the show notes for more details. And if you like what you hear, please hit subscribe, leave a review, a rating or share. We'll be back on the podcast stands in two weeks bringing back that new optimism of the 80s, hopefully.